I remember sitting with a married couple a few years ago in ministry, and they had two girls who both who they both, the parents, wanted to love and, and follow Jesus. Their oldest was in her early 20s. She had just moved out and moved in with her boyfriend, and, and that hurt them as parents a little bit. But what really broke their, their heart, what really grieved them as parents and caused them great concern was that their daughter showed little to no interest in cultivating a relationship with God anymore. Their younger daughter, an early teenager, had also begun to rebel against her parents' authority and showed an increasing lack of zeal and faith for the faith she had grown up in. I mean, it breaks the parents' heart to see their children walk away from Jesus. Today, we see Paul's heart for his spiritual children who were on the verge of walking away from the gospel that had changed their life, this gospel of grace that Paul had preached to these people in Galatia. Paul had preached this gospel of grace. He became their spiritual father when he was in Galatia, preaching to the Galatians. And then he leaves. And then a group of false teachers come in, And they start preaching a gospel plus gospel. We've called it a counterfeit gospel, a gospel of works, a works righteousness gospel. They would say things like, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you must take up the entirety of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, over 600 commands. You must really do these things to be approved by God. And they had been gaining influence in this region. In today's passage, Paul, knowing that his children are being swayed, pleads with them like a loving father who's desperate to get their attention. Man, we've been deep into theology. The past few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus fulfilling the law. We've been talking about the purpose of the law. Uh, But but here, Paul kind of puts that academic hat down. He's done defending justification by faith in this chapter. And he's really just talking to them like a father and a friend who loves this group of people that he sees are in danger. Are in danger of walking away from the gospel of life, the true gospel that he has preached to them. And so we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at Paul's heart. And in doing so... We're also going to learn about some ministry realities that we must all confront if we seek to do the type of gospel ministry that Paul does. And guess what? We're all called to do gospel ministry. But there's some realities that we come face to face with, especially if we're wanting to do like Paul. So let's go back to verse 8. Go back to verse 8. Formally, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Before you knew the one true God, you Gentile Galatians were slaves to lowercase g gods, created idols, pagan deities. And what is always behind these false gods? Demonic forces. And so before you knew God, these were the type of things you were engaged in. You were, you were, you were slaving and you were, you were obeying and doing and serving these false gods who were driven by demonic forces. But then look at the rest of verse, or the first part of verse nine. But know that you have come to know God or rather be known by God. To know God 
in the Bible means more than just to know of God. If you would ask most people, they would still say, yeah, I know of God. I know about God. That's a bit different than the biblical concept of know. It's more intimate to know God and be known by God is simply to enter into a deep, personal, intimate relationship with God. God is our father who loves us. He is near to us. We are his children. We've talked about this. We are heirs of his inheritance. We are saved and redeemed. And as all this happens, when we put our faith in Jesus, we know God and God knows us. Look at the rest of verse nine. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, now, look at what Paul is saying here. Them picking up the law is like going back to the enslaving gods they once worshipped. Think about what he's saying. Your observance of these Jewish festivals, events, and holidays, all these works that you're doing to obtain the approval of the God, Paul is saying they're the same as paganism. Both lead to slavery. Both are driven by demonic forces. Both will fail you. Even though you may call it Christian, to be legalistic and to believe that what I do can earn God's favor, that's, that's the same thing Paul calls here. It's the same thing as paganism. That's, man, think about how Paul's hearers heard this word. His Jewish hearers heard this word. And what you've been doing is not uh, of God. One pastor said, if you believe your biblical morality can save you, if you begrudgingly show up to church sing songs, study the Bible, all to earn God's favor. You are no different than over one billion Hindus in the world today who bow to their gods. Both are a gospel of works. Paul's children are turning back to works righteousness, which is no different from the religion they once practiced. And look at verse 11. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Like a parent, who sees his child running into traffic. Paul fears for them. You ever had that happen to you? One of your kids is running out of the driveway and there's a car coming. Your heart stops, you get sick, and you would do anything to grab your child to stop them from, from running into danger. Maybe my message didn't stick. Maybe your proclamation of faith wasn't genuine. Maybe it was all for nothing and I'm gonna suffer the pain of seeing my children lost. Now, this emotion and honesty is really what carries us through the rest of this passage as we look at Paul's gospel ministry. There's, there's heart involved, which we'll talk about. But look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I've also become as you are. You did me no wrong. Brothers, this is a term of endearment. I say brother all the time, like brother. It's probably because I watched 80s wrestling, like WWF in the 80s, like brother, let's get a brother. Uh, but, but if I say brother to you, man, brother, that's, that's, I, I say brother a lot. It, it means I love you. Like I care for you. I really look at you like a spiritual brother. And that's kind of the idea here. Paul, it's a term of endearment. Brothers, Paul says, be like me. Be like me. Now, Paul's not saying be as good as I am and, 
as awesome as I am. You know, it, it's not a superficial similarity that Paul wants them to. He's not saying, you know, we should wear the same clothes and, oh, look at my haircut. We should all get the same haircut. We'd be awesome. He, he's not saying be like me in, in a superficial kind of on the surface sort of sense. Paul is saying, I am no longer under the law of Moses. I'm no longer looking at the law of Moses to try to impress God. Be like me in that sense. Live in the freedom that I live in. Join me in being free from the burden of works righteousness. Be like me, for I became like you. Underline that. I became like you. And here we get a glimpse into Paul's approach to gospel ministry. And it's our first point here. But gospel ministry means being prepared to contextualize. What? Contextualize. That's, that's, a, that's too big of a word uh, for me to understand this morning. What are you talking about uh, to contextualize? And there's really no other word uh, that you can use. Greg, can you think of another word of contextualize? You're, you're the head of a missions agency. No, he can't. Okay, so I don't feel that dumb this morning. <laughs> Simply put, contextualization is the process of making the gospel and the church as much at, at home as much as possible in a given cultural context. And so in ministering to the Galatians, Paul entered into their world. He got to know their world and, and live in it. He sought to understand them. As people, their, their hopes and fears and dreams. Missionaries will adopt certain customs and cultural norms. They'll use local language and idioms and references so that the gospel may be understood. That's the idea of contextualization. And you're like, well, why should I have to do that? Because somebody did it for you. All this up here, do you think they had this in the early church? Like microphones and TVs and, and chairs and rows. And, and, you know, you're sitting next to people who aren't your relatives. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's all like, it's because somebody said, you know, in, in the United States and in our modern times, this is how we take the gospel and how we make it fit into this culture. We're not going to sin. We're not going to do those things. We're not going to change the gospel, but we're going to maybe change the way we, uh, we get to the point where we share the gospel. We, 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 we toil and prep the grounds that the gospel may be heard. That's contextualization. Paul says elsewhere, I became like them. I gave up my rights so that I might win some. A lot of contextualization is giving up your rights, which I'm, oh, I'm an American. How dare you say I must give up my rights? But that's, that's it's contextualization for the sake of the gospel. I mean, you have the right to eat meat at your, your vegan neighbor's house if they invite you to, over for dinner. You have the right to do that. I don't know if it's the best thing for the gospel. I mean, you have the, you have the right to eat with your left hand or, or, or uh, wear your shoes indoors or, or leave a Central Asian birthday party before the rice is served. I mean, I was reading about all these this week, about all these contextualization things, but, but you should put down your rights. You should put down your rights 
if it means communicating the gospel more effectively. You should put down your rights if it means communicating the gospel more effectively. Contextualization means adapting as possible without sinning. If we love others and want them to know Jesus, we'll be willing to get messy. Look at verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first. Paul acknowledges that an unknown illness forced him to stop in Galatia. Paul had no intention of stopping in Galatia. I, I, told, I talked about this last week. It's like when I say, hey, I'm from Topeka, Kansas. Oh, I've driven through Topeka, Kansas, uh, but for no reason would I stop in Topeka, Kansas. And, and so Paul's like, hey, I got sick. We don't know why he got it. We, we don't know if it was a malaria or an eye infection. We, we don't know. We don't know if he hurt his leg. or We, we don't know. But, but God sovereignly allowed Paul to suffer in sickness so that these people could hear the gospel. Here's another gospel ministry reality. It means being prepared to suffer. Be prepared to suffer, often for the greater good. God has many times allowed me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If, you, if you're in men's ministry, you know what I'm talking about. God has allowed me to walk through the valley of shadow, uh, the valley of the shadow of death multiple times in my life, either for my good, to shape me and humble me and mold me, or for the sake of others. Many of you are in that valley right now. Many of you, since you started coming to Central Bible Church, have been like, man, these, all these crazy things start happening. You're in that valley. Man, my, my, my life is hard right now. My marriage is hard right now. I have a child who's doing this. Work is hard right now. Life is hard right now. Getting employed is hard right now. Finding people to fill these positions at my work so I don't kill myself is hard right now. I mean, many of you are in that valley. God ain't done with you. In fact, he's probably doing something in you. He's creating some sort of Christ-like characteristic like hope and perseverance and, and faith. Or he's preparing you to, to minister better to other people later who will walk through a similar situation. We must have this perspective of suffering in ministry. Charles Spurgeon once said, famous Baptist pastor, a big guy, had a beard, you got to listen to him. <laughs> suppose that by some painful operation you could have your right arm made a little longer I do not suppose you would care to undergo the operation but if you foresaw that by undergoing the pain you would be enabled to reach and save drowning men who else would sink before your eyes I think you would willingly bear the agony and pay a heavy fee to the surgeon to be thus qualified for the rescue of your fellows. Paul suffered for the sake of others. Here, many lives were changed because God, God allowed Paul to get sick and he forced him to stop. Luckily, Paul's suffering at first was met with warmth and hospitality. Look at verse 14. And though my condition was a trial to you. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? 
For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You really see Paul's heart here. God brought me to you and you received me. Even though it was hard to take care of me, you made me feel loved and accepted and cared for when I was sick and when I was weak. I needed somebody to help and you stepped up. You received me, you received my message. There was, there was real fellowship between us. I ministered to you, you ministered to me, we ministered together. And at one point, you would have even hurt yourself if it meant that I would experience less pain and suffering. Now, things are different. What's happened to your blessedness? What's, what's happened to your joy, joy in our friendship? Have I become your enemy? Am I now your enemy? Because I speak truth. Here's another gospel ministry reality. It means being prepared for rejection. Especially if you're willing to stand on truth. Gospel ministry will move us to speak up and say to people we love, hey, that's not the gospel. And it'll move us to say, hey man, that, that act or that habit, that behavior, that is also not in line with the gospel. The act of speaking truth at some point or another, it'll lead to rejection. Even if you're gracious and loving and speaking the truth. Now, I don't want you to get rejected because you're a jerk. A lot of people get rejected because they're just, they're a jerk. They're rude, they're domineering. That's not what I'm talking about here. You can speak the truth in, in grace and love with compassion and, and still be rejected. Nonetheless, we must speak the truth, even, even if it's costly. Because the people we love need it. You need it. I need it. I'm thankful for men in my life who have seen something in me and said, man, I, I got to speak up because what he is doing is not in line with the gospel. I remember early on in, in ministry, and if my wife was in here, she remembers this too. Early on in ministry, man, I just was stressed, uh, which is no excuse. Husbands, if you're stressed, you have, you have no excuse for being mean to your wife. Uh, but, but I was very stressed early on in ministry. And anytime my wife would call me on the phone, I'd be very like short and curt. I just, I, the, the idea was you're being somewhat of a nuisance. I need to get back to work. And so I'd be like, hey, no, I, oh, okay, yep, all right, bye. I'd just be very short. And, and my lead pastor caught on to that. And he called me out. <laughs> he said, man, whenever your wife calls, you treat her like she's a problem to get rid of and, and work is more important than she is. It's like, you need, you need to stop that. And I said, I quit. No, I didn't quit right there. <laughs> but, but think about it. I mean, there was a chance that I could have rejected him. People have rejected people for less. I could have said, no, you're wrong. I could have let that bitterness sink in and that would have led me leaving. 
But I was so thankful that he loved me enough and he loved my family enough to speak truth into my life. Gospel ministry means being prepared for rejection, especially if you're willing to stand on truth. These people had been rejecting Paul. And we see the reason why in verses 17 through 18. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They are these false teachers. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. So here's what Paul's saying. These false teachers are leading you to abandon the gospel of grace that once changed your life. And and their motives are not pure. Their motives are self-indulging. They want to boast uh, and, and boost their likes. They want to go viral. They're zealous for your adulation. And, and Paul's saying, man, zeal isn't a bad thing. I'm zealous, Paul says, for you to grow spiritually. But these guys are like giant Labradors, zealous for attention. They need to be petted and affirmed, which is a little just side note here. Many pastors operate this way. Many pastors up. You, you, know, you want to know how I know why? Because I have operated this way. Especially when I was younger. You know, I lived off praises and I died by criticisms. These, these men, they say they, they, they love you and they, they want what's best for your life, but, but in reality, they want to build their brand and they want you to make them feel good when you make their sermon clip go viral. It's why I hate this entire celebrity pastor thing. It's why we don't post a ton of stuff online of like, hey, Larry's sermon clips, because you're my congregation. I don't need the the approval of, of anybody other than God. And, and you're the people that I preach to. But the celebrity pastor culture somewhat indulges that, that fleshly side of us. We, we need to move away from people who regularly operate in this mode. Move away from pastors who regularly operate in this mode. If you're like, hey, Larry, I like you, but this person online who I've never met who lives 800 miles away, they're really my pastor, I'd caution you against that. I'd really caution you against that. Move away from, from such people. Also, move away from, from that yourself, that, that approval-seeking. Many of us live, 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 for, live for approval, and we die by criticism. Put that to death in yourself. You've been approved by God. The creator of the universe has hit the like button on your life. Approval-seeking will torpedo your ministry because it feeds your pride and self-righteousness. Such an approach will burn yourself out and push others away. Look at verse 19 and 20, and we'll close up. My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Very interesting thing for, for Paul to say. Like it'd be, man, I'm so stressed. It'd be like me being like, man, I'm so stressed about church today. It feels like I'm, you know, in labor. Like it's just a weird thing uh, for, for, for Paul to, to say here. But he's saying, these false teachers want to use you. I feel like I'm in labor over here. 
Before I was laboring over your conversion, you, you were born anew, Christ dwelled in you. Now these teachers have come in and they threaten your faith. There's a chance you might turn back. And so I suffer and toil again because God needs to renew you again until Christ is formed in you, until you are mature in Christ. Paul is in anguish. Think about this. Paul is in such anguish of what is going on spiritually with these other people. It's our last gospel reality. Gospel ministry means being prepared to care. We've seen this all over the passage. It's evident here. Paul loves these people and he yearns for them to mature in faith. And and I'm just gonna be honest. I'm asking you just a real, real question. Real talk. Do you have that kind of ministry to others? Do you have that kind of ministry to others? Are there any whom you are discipling or praying for or anguishing over? Now you may say, yeah, my kids and and my family. That's great. That's a great place to start. But beyond that, are you so invested in the spiritual growth of others that it impacts your day to day? So if somebody else in in your church or somebody on your street that doesn't know Jesus, if they hurt, are you not just sympathetic, but are you empathetic? Do you feel what they feel? Do you have that type of ministry that Paul has as to others? And if you're like, well, I I don't really care to have that. I don't don't want that. And a lot of people, if you'll be honest, I, I don't want to care about others that I got enough to care about. So for me to care about what's going on in Greg's life, what's going on in Matthew's life, that's too, too, too much for me. If that's you, then I will say in love, in truth, you don't fully understand what Jesus did for you. You don't fully understand what Jesus has done for you. When I talk about gospel ministry, it's simply because of the fact that Paul's Paul's heart and ministry is a reflection of Jesus. All of these things, Jesus Jesus did. Jesus contextualized. He became man. He took on flesh. He met us where we were at. He spoke our language, communicated the gospel in a way that we could understand. And he served us in that contextualization. He gave his life for ours. Jesus suffered in life and death. Jesus took upon himself the cross. He was beaten. He was tortured. A crown of thorns was placed upon his head. Nails were driven into his hands and to his feet. He essentially suffocated to death on the cross all because of a greater good that me and you would later experience. He suffered so that we could know God. He suffered so that we could experience life with God. Jesus experienced rejection. Everybody rejected Jesus. He went to his hometown. There was rejection. The religious leaders rejected Jesus. Even his own friends rejected him. 
when the rubber hit the road. And finally, we know that Jesus cared. Jesus cared enough for us, enough to give himself for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus-shaped gospel ministry means loving others in such a way. So may we, may you contextualize. May you suffer for the sake of. May you be willing to face rejection. May you deeply care for others in a way that moves them to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.